it's like, of course you notice color and that's okay. But like, then it's like, what is the story you have about black people? What is the story you have about Middle Easterners? What is the story you have about Southerners? And bringing that to consciousness. Hey everyone, so that was Dr. Elena Connor, and before I tell you about her, I have to tell you how special this episode is because it literally took an act of God for this to come together. So um, let's start from the beginning. So I'm holding Dr. Connor's book, uh, which her husband had given me. He, uh, Howard Rose uh, became a very close friend of mine uh, when I moved here in the Bay Area. Brilliant man. Um, he's an innovator and an entrepreneur in the virtual reality space, specifically in healthcare. And so, um, you know, I used to go to um, Howard's home when they were both uh, faculty at Stanford and we would you know, sip some wine, you know, eat dinner. And it was really um, a great friend to have when I first moved here to Bay Area. So he gave me this book uh, that his wife wrote called Clash, A Cultural Conflicts That Make Us Who We Are. And I'm looking inside the book. So this was given to me back in 2017. So read the book. Um, and of course, I, I read a lot of books, you know, all at once. So it took me some time to get through this one because it's, it's a really fantastic book, but heavily researched, you know, a lot of uh, uh details in it and I love the book and so we, we've discussed it and I always said you know to Elena that I would really like to have her on a podcast and so you know as many things happen you know life gets in the way and we never get a chance to do it so then January 26th of 2020 we finally do we sit down to do the podcast we finish it and boom COVID happens so of course you know trying to uh, arrange my life and work uh, work around COVID um, then I get around to editing the podcast and First obstacle is, um, you know, the podcast had some issues because of the recording. So I had to do a lot of audio um, editing and it was a real pain in the ass to do. And right when I get finished uh, doing it, another thing happens, which is my computer crashes and I lose the files. And so I have to try and find them again somehow. Um, Luckily, um, the platform I was using recorded it again. But um, yeah, so I went literally through hell to get this, but it is such a fantastic podcast, such a wonderful episode. So who is Dr. Elena Connor, you're asking? Let me tell you. So Dr. Connor is a cultural scientist who aims to enhance the well-being of diverse populations around the world. And she's had a huge diverse career. She's had careers in tech, publishing, academia, um, and her employers and clients have included uh, such prestigious and well-known places such as the Stanford Department of Psychology, Facebook, the World Bank, Instagram, Twitter, and Google. I'm not kidding you. She's, she's worked at all those places. And her most recent book is called Clash, How to Thrive in a Multicultural World, which she co-authored uh, with another cultural psychology pioneer, uh, Dr. Hazel Rose Marcus. Now, Dr. Connor received her bachelor's in psychology and philosophy from Yale University, her doctorate in social and cultural psychology from Stanford University, and her postdoc certificate in psychology and medicine from the University of California, San Francisco Medical Center. Uh, she's a native to Memphis, and she now resides in San Francisco with her husband, cat, and wildly aggressive tomato plants. I'm not making that up. That's literally what she sent me. (laughs) Um, So uh, without further ado, 
here is my interview with Dr. Elena Connor on Clash and the cultural conflicts that makes who we are. I think you're going to love it. I know you're going to love it. Here you go. Enjoy. Powerful, the wonderful <laughs> Connor. How's it going? I'm greatly and powerfully. <laughs> Apparently, I had no idea I had great and powerful. Um, yeah, things are great. I'm really looking forward to talking with you about class. I know, me too. So just uh, for, for the listeners, just like a little bit of context. So when I first moved out here to the Bay Area, um, I, I didn't have a whole lot of friends uh, back in 2017. But uh, one of those people I, I befriended was... Uh, Elena's husband, Howard, uh, Howard Rose. And uh, when we got to hanging out, uh, this is before I, I met Elena, uh, he gifted me her book, Clash, Eight Cultural Conflicts That Make Us Who We Are. And it took me a, a solid, um, I'd say two years to get through. And of course, part of it, which is because I'm, I'm always reading many books at once, but also because this book was so well written so well researched you can tell a book that's been like half-assed and a book that really put a lot of blood sweat and tears and clash is definitely one of those books and so since i'm doing a review on it this is actually the first time i've i'm having an author on my podcast to discuss the book so thanks for thanks for getting that kicked off well thanks for i i'm i'm happy to be your guinea pig um hopefully we'll get through this um intact oh absolutely so look you know Give us a little context, like who is Elena Connor? So I'm a cultural scientist, which means I take a radically multidisciplinary approach to understanding, on the one hand, how people make cultures. Cultures are humans' special, unique tricks for navigating our environments and living everywhere. Um, and it takes, uh, cultural science takes seriously the idea that this is what is unique about us. And so if we're going to understand human psychologies, if we're going to understand humans, uh, thoughts and feelings and actions, we have to understand the cultures of which they've been a part. And so the other half of this equation, um, TLDR, I study how people make cultures and in turn, how cultures make people. Got it. And how did you come about doing that? Yeah, so uh, really good question. Um, I a couple of different paths in my life. Number one, I was just always kind of paying attention to culture. It turns out I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, um, and at a time when um, so for those of you who don't know, Memphis is kind of famous for being where uh, Martin Luther King was Jr. was assassinated. Um, it's a place with a lot of racial tensions. Um, and I grew up really thinking a lot about um, being European American, but also the African American cultural experiences that were going on around me. Uh, and then when I was, uh, I, I was raised by a single mother in a very working class community. And then in high school, I went to this fancy prep school. And so I started thinking a lot about class, so social class, and also about gender, because um, I was becoming very aware of my mother's struggles in her career. Uh, and then I went away, I uh, got very lucky on the SAT one day, and I wound up getting a full ride to Yale, which was like kind of blew my mind. I was up in New Haven, Connecticut, and really started thinking not only more about social class, but also about regional cultures and how the Northeast was so very different from my home in the South. 
So right there by the young age of 18, I was thinking about gender, race, ethnicity, class, region, um, even uh, looking at organizational cultures and uh, subcultures, freaks and geeks. Um, And so, you know, I didn't really know what it was I was looking at, but I knew it's what I was interested in. And so I kind of found my way first into social psychology and then this sub um, field within social psychology called cultural psychology. And away we went. Nice, nice. Um, and how you know how how did how did Clash come about? You know, I know that you had you had a co-author, uh, uh, Dr. Hazel Rose Marcus, and uh, from your TED talk, I can tell that somebody that you really look up to. You know, uh, why why did the world need need this book? Yeah. Um, so I went and did my PhD at Stanford with Hazel, um, Hazel Rose Marcus, who's one of the pioneers in the field of cultural psychology. Um, and then I did a troubled myself to do a postdoc actually in psychology and medicine, where I was applying a lot of what I was learning from cultural, cultural psychology to the problem of health disparities, um, and the HIV epidemic, and really thinking about how do we change people's behaviors and how those techniques differ by cultural context. So I was going in a very applied direction. Um, and actually, I got so applied that I left academia for a bunch of years and became a science writer and magazine editor. And somewhere along the way in there, I realized, wow, you know, all this super groovy stuff I learned in graduate school no one knows about it. It's really locked in the journals of academia. It's in university libraries um, and paywalled uh, journals. And so I was like, uh, one day I was having lunch with Hazel and I said, Hazel, you know, we need to, we need to write a book. People don't know about cultural psychology and there's so many important ideas in there about how culturally situated people are and how if you want to help people, if you want to use psychology to help people, you really have to understand all the cultures of which they've been a part. So, hey, what you say, we write that book together. And and so we did. <laughs> we uh, uh, hashed out an outline at that lunch, uh, found an agent, sold the book at auction, and a year later it was published. That's amazing. And I got to say, you know, uh, as somebody who reads and collects a, a whole a whole lot of books, and I'm talking from my library, you know, your your book. I mean, of course, the context of the, the contents of the book are amazing, and I definitely want to get into this. But just starting from the outside, but I I got to tell you, like it it was one of the more uh, uh, well designed book covers, and I I kind of have a thing when it comes to book design and art. Um, but I do love the design. It's very eye-catching because you have, um, you know, East versus West, male versus female, 1% versus 99%. Um, originally, when you started writing the book, did you guys have, um, I think, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, all eight of those different uh, dynamics or dichotomies in mind to write about, or did they evolve over time? <laughs> so the joke of this is we could have written – uh, you know, 15 cultural conflicts that make us who we are, 20, 25, um, you know, you could, in addition to the cultural conflicts we wrote about, you can think about sexual orientation, um, generation, 
um, language, um, neighborhood, gang, hobby. There's all these different ways. Um, and I just want to highlight, you know, some people just think of culture as being nationality or ethnicity. I mean, we take a very broad view of culture um, as including all these different ways that humans group ourselves. Um, so we actually, I think, originally started out with um, uh I think we started out with the, these eight cultural conflicts, but it was kind of came down to where was the scientific literature the strongest? Um, because some of those cultural divides, um, there just hasn't been that much research, and, or at least there hadn't been when we were writing the book. So we were constrained by the strength of the scientific literatures for those eight different cultural divides. But, you know, there's so many other ways, um, so many different cultural contexts that shape us. Um, and one day I'd like to write about those as well. Very nice. Yeah. And, you know, for, for those listening, you know, the, you know, the topics of the book cover. So I mentioned there's East versus West, West, uh, global North versus global South men versus women, rich versus poor business versus governments and nonprofits, whites versus people of color, conservative versus liberal religious groups, and then coast versus hardline. Which one of those was the most difficult in terms of the amount of research and study you guys had to go into? Oh, that's a that's a great question. Um, the most difficult to write would probably be, um, I mean, each of them, each chapter presented its own difficulties. I would say um, global north versus global south, simply because you're bowling over consolidating a lot of research. Um, in, in that chapter, we talk about the Middle East and North Africa and India and um, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, South America. I mean, you know, kind of figuring out which of all these amazing uh, research traditions do we want to highlight um, was a hard task uh, because obviously there's just a lot of diversity in those, in those findings. Interesting. Interesting. You know, something um, that I appreciated in the book was, you know, you're dealing with very uh, complicated topic here, um, but you guys did a fantastic job, uh, not only laying out a, a very nice foundation, but also these fantastic frameworks. And one of them I wanted to kind of dive into. And um, don't worry, I don't, you know, I, I know it's been a few years since you've written the book, but I, I have it in front of me, so I'll, I'll read it for, for those listening. But uh, first is the culture cycle. So you mentioned that your uh, I, you know, literally the, the letter I for those listening, you know, the self, the mind, the psyche and soul uh, is something that anchors the left side of the culture cycle uh, with things like thoughts, feelings and actions. And then the right hand of this framework, which is the culture side of the cycle, includes things like interactions, institutions and ideas. So for those listening, if you can picture it, you know, on the far left, you have the I, but then you go to interactions, institutions and ideas. And that's essentially what the culture cycle is. Elena, can you kind of give us a little bit more, uh, more detail and insight behind that, and, and what's what's important about about that cycle? Yeah, I mean, and it is it's a it's a lot to picture. I think the the important thing to know about the culture cycle. This is how we. A lot of times, when people say that a problem or a phenomenon is cultural. They often mean that they don't understand it and they don't know how to fix it, right? It's like, it's too complex. It's cultural. The culture cycle is our simplification of how cultures work and how we can change them. It's a cycle, not only because 
cultures shape individuals, but also because individuals shape their cultures, right? So you're not just like a victim to some monolithic, mind-sucking cultural forces. Every individual makes, contests, reshapes the cultures they're part of every day, right? And so you're participating in culture all the time. This is what's unique about humans. Um, so... Yeah, so the cultural show, cycle shows that on the one hand, individuals' daily interactions with customs, norms, media, artifacts, institutions shape how we think, feel, and act. But on the other hand, how we think, feel, and act in turn recreates the cultures of which we are a part. And in Clash, we use the culture cycle to illustrate exactly how culture cycles foster two different ways of being a person. And so that's the other big concept in the book is, you know, people have many different selves, but a lot of time, most of those selves kind of sort into two different flavors, um, uh, independence and interdependence. And in fact, in Clash, we show that many of the world's fiercest cultural conflicts stem from the same root cause, which is this clash of independence versus interdependence. So I should probably explain what I mean by independence and interdependence. Um, so as I said, we, you know, we have, we have all these different selves, um, uh, but all of us have these two selves. Our independent self wants to be separate, unique, and in control. But our interdependent self wants to be connected and similar and cooperative. Depending on your unique mix of cultural backgrounds, you probably tend to use oneself more than the other. And tensions flare when people using their independent self interact with people using their interdependent self. So that's like the three big concepts in the book. Culture cycle, clash of independence and interdependence. Um, and also using the culture cycle to understand how to fix those clashes. Interesting, interesting. And you know what's really amazing, and I think the book was pretty was pretty far ahead of its time. Like one of the more uh, popular best selling books out there was uh, *Sapiens*, and in it, Harari talks about uh, exactly what what you guys writ, wrote in uh, *Clash* a few years ago, which was that you know as history and human beings sort of evolved, especially here in the West there was this um, dependence on a community, right? And I guess and in, in, in for the book, that's interdependence. Um, but when you have a lot of community dependence, you don't have a lot of uh, people who are risk-taking and independent. But then when you start fostering uh, people to be more independent, they start to be more removed from the community. You don't have such a strong uh, community anymore because people are more independent. I think you see that quite often here in America. And I think um, what's very interesting is that I loved reading this book because uh, I live here in San Francisco and this is a great example of a city where you have a lot of people who are Americans, but a lot of people who are coming from other parts of the world and more specifically interdependent type of cultures. And you, you see that clash here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I now work in social media, um, which, you know, to me, one of the ironies of social media is that, people from very independent cultural context kind of created it. And so it was sort of a very independent person's idea of how to connect socially. Um, and as a result, a lot of, you know, a lot of the glue that holds humans together in relationship comes from things like 
seeing each other's faces, <laughs> hearing their voices, like paying attention to our nonverbal behaviors, knowing who you are connected to, you know, what is your, who is your family? Uh, who is your tribe? Um, and all of those signals are missing on social media or they have historically been missing. I mean, different companies are doing different things. And so, you know, this clash of independence and interdependence sort of plays out, I think, every day on social media where all the cues we need to coordinate as community members or many of those cues are missing. Interesting. What are, what are some things that you feel that social media be able to at least evolve over time to, to start incorporating those kind of things? Um, well, you know, in Clash, we talk about interdependence. You know, there's five different facets of it. Um, similarity, connection, adjusting, um, uh, things uh, relating. And so, you know, more, I mean, one thing is just a lot of times people on social media, um, seek to differentiate themselves and show how they're unique and show how they're better. You can imagine, you know, features that, you know, show how you're similar to other people, show how you're connected in real life um, and kind of help you feel more emotionally attuned. Got it. Yeah. And, you know, there's something, um, one thing I love about this book, because to be honest with you, there are a lot of great books on, um, you know, on sociology, on psychology, and, 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 you know, they, they, they give a very rich background into these topics, but for, for a reader, you're often left, um, sort of, you know, not in to, on your own, to your own devices to figure out how you should apply these things. What I love is that you guys actually took the time to, uh, to not only give a kind of an interesting test to see whether you're more independent or interdependent, uh, but mm -hmm. also uh, you provided a framework of, and most importantly, a very simple and applicable one of how people can function better to avoid those type of cultural clashes. Uh, can you can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So in Clash, um, for each of these eight cultural conflicts, we give very concrete and specific advice for how to manage it. But you can, you know, <laughs> uh, at the end of the day, the TLDR is in case of conflict, is there's three steps to take. First, don't assume the other person is an asshole. Um, instead, at least try out the idea that you're experiencing a cultural conflict, a culture clash, that this person is just coming from a very different background from you or has a very different set of assumptions than you do. Because when we think of things as being about the situation rather than about the person, you know, we tend to be more creative about um, how do I fix this situation? Whereas if we think like this person is just a hopeless jerk, there's nothing I can do, right? So we throw up our hands, we walk away and we've missed an opportunity. So then the second step is lead with interdependence. Get out your interdependent self. We all have one. Um, even people, the most independent people in the world know how to connect and relate and um, adjust to other people. So, and we say that because when we are being interdependent, we pay more attention to other people. And so we can get a better understanding of what the problem is and then generate ideas of how to solve it. You know, when we're trying to relate to someone, we're listening to them. Um, we're trying to find common ground. And then finally, if that doesn't work, try independence, right? Um, so 
independence is also an equally important way to be in the world. Uh, your independent self is the one that challenges the status quo, thinks outside the box, um, you know, fights oppression, uh, tries to be creative and innovative. But I, th I think a lot of people, especially here in the Bay Area where we are, you know, we always lead with independence. You know, how can I like think out of the box and how can I dare to be different or whatever? That goes down a lot better if there's a if there's a foundation of trust and relationship that you've already built by trying out interdependence first. So the upshot, number one, don't assume the other person is a jerk. A jerk. Two, lead with interdependence. Three, if that doesn't work, try independence. Yeah, and you know what I really love about that, and I have I again one one of my favorite parts about your book is that it's 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 really well laid out so that we have a lot of context and information, but then also these uh, quick references. So you know, on the interdependence side, just for those listening, uh, what's listed down is to be able to listen, think about how uh, you are similar to others. Remember that adjusting to others doesn't mean you're weak. Consider how each action affects others and assume that others have more authority th uh, than you. What are some examples of some uh, culture classes, or not culture classes, examples of culture where they're very strongly interdependent? I mean, the, the, the funny thing about clash, I think, is and for many readers of clash, you know, we're mostly middle class educated uh, people in North America. The book has been translated to other languages, including Korean and Brazilian Portuguese. But, you know, mostly cultures that really emphasize being independent. Um, but most of the world, actually, most of the world's cultures tend to emphasize interdependence. Um, so you laid out the eight cultural conflicts that we talk about in the book. Um, and so, you know, relative to the West, for instance, East Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia tend to be more interdependent. Relative to men, women tend to use their interdependent self more. Uh, less wealthy people tend to use interdependence more than wealthy people. Um, even within the U.S., I'm from the South, the Midwest, these tend to be more interdependent regions than the coast, the, the East Coast and the West Coast. Um and, and so on. And compared to the global north, global south tends to, people in the global south tend to use interdependence. Now, I, I want to point out, you know, this all sounds like super simplistic, right? Like super binary. These are, you know, these are, I mean, obviously there's a lot of overlap between, you know, men and women, west and east, north and south. Um, what we're talking about here are not categorical differences, that these things are utterly unrelated what we're talking about is really kind of differences in mean tendencies. Like if you look across a population of say West coast, uh, college educated European Americans, if you measure our sense of ourselves, we will tend to look much more independent than say, if I looked at, uh, rural, um, Ghanaian farmers, uh, farming women, right? In Ghana, right? So if you take, t uh, and you can kind of make that comparison um, with a lot between um, European Americans and a lot of other groups in the world, and, and those other groups turn out looking a lot more interdependent.
That was a long answer. <laughs> was it, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It just there. You know, I, I, I was sitting and, and really thinking deeply about about what you just said. You know, are you sure you weren't having a snack? No, I definitely was not having a snack. I made sure to eat beforehand. I actually, one time I was interviewing somebody and my, my, my stomach kept growling. I was like, yeah, I'm going to make sure that I eat next time. Yeah, 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 you know, it's like you can have deep thoughts or deep snacks. Those are both cool with me. Deep thoughts and deep snacks. I feel like that's a, that's, that's the start of a new podcast. I mean, yeah, yeah, we could co-host it. You bring the deep thoughts, I'll bring the deep snacks. You know, Elena, this is why I love you. We, this, is, this, is, this is why we're such good friends. So, so let, me, let, me, let me ask you uh, uh, an interesting question. One of the things that I, I felt that was very helpful to me is the clash between men and women. And, you know, the exciting thing in the world is that just in the last, you know, 50 or 60 years have women really entered the workforce, which is unbelievable to think that we were, you know, the the whole world was functioning on only 50% of its talent up until the last like 50 or 100 years, you know, but of course, because of that, there's a lot of benefits to men and women working together in the workplace. But of course, there are definitely clashes. And you mentioned that women, uh, uh, by majority, they, they, they relate more to an interdependent self, correct? Yeah, I mean, once again, there are plenty of women that are you know, more independent than the most independent man. And there's plenty of men who are more interdependent than the most interdependent woman. But as a general rule, if you look, and this is true across many cultures, women tend to use our interdependent sides. And that's for a lot of really interesting reasons. Um, most of them having to do with more nurture than nature. If you actually look at kind of, uh, you know, nature, uh, genetic differences or natural differences between men and women, the differences are, there's not that many really big ones. I mean, the three big ones are men are physically stronger than women, men are more aggressive than women, and men think about sex a lot more than women do. Um, and that's true across populations. And then all these other differences that people talk about that, oh, men are more spatial, women are more verbal, uh, you know, men are more um, rational, women are more emotional, men are for, from Mars, women are from Venus. Like, it's just not true. Those are not where the action is. Um, but, but all those small and medium differences do roll up to, in most cultures, women are socialized to pay more attention to relationships, to be caretakers, to nurture, um, and where men don't are not expected to do that as much. Um, and to the, I mean, uh, what uh, I'd say to the detriment of men, <laughs> I, I actually think what research is increasingly showing is that, especially in the workplace, interdependent is a super, interdependence is a, is a superpower for women. It allows women to work better on teams. It allows women to, um, problem solve a lot better and even come up with solutions that are more appropriate for more of the world's populations. I see. Does that now, let me ask you this. Is there, is there any way that within the workplace, whether it's man or woman, can interdependence, uh, uh, be a hindrance? Um, well, let me tell you about a study that I really like, and I, I haven't seen any, I have not seen any empirical research suggesting that interdependence, 
um, is, you know, I, I think people are increasingly realizing the that it's been undervalued in the workplace um, and independence has been kind of overvalued or even mislabeled. Um, so there's, uh, let's see, once upon a time, <laughs> there was this really cool study done at MIT showing that um, on group test, uh, test of reasoning, test of creativity, uh, test of social coordination, the more women you add to the group, the better the group performs, up to 100% women. Um, and what the researchers found, this is um, Tom Malone and Anita Woolley, was that women um, were just much more practiced at paying attention to each other. And so this emergent phenomenon of collective intelligence where we are just doing a much better job of coordinating, of listening, of building off of each other's genius, if you will, allows us to do a better job of solving problems in groups, which, you know, in the workplace is, you know, the irony of education in the U.S. is you're asked to do all this independent work. When you get to the workplace, it's much more team-based, right? And so... Absolutely. I never thought of it like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we weren't getting in school as students, like a lot of girls and women are getting in our socialization and other places and also in school. I mean, girls and women are expected to be more interdependent at school as well. So you get into the workplace and uh, yeah, just women are doing a lot more checking in with each other, listening, coordinating, building. Um, also do, going out of their way to make each other feel comfortable because we know that people, when people feel threatened um, is when they feel less creative Right. And so if you have a situation with a bunch of people who are vying to be independent, um, who are competing with each other to kind of a toxic level, they're actually not very creative. They're more focused on winning than solving a problem. And so women are less likely to do that than men. Interesting. Interesting. What's something that you feel that uh, both men and women could be doing a better job of today in the workplace? Listening. <laughs> and this is kind of like, you know, note to self. Um, you know, I think in our culture, and by our culture, I mean middle class, upper class, you know, European American or historically European American context, you know, people were really rewarded for speaking out, um, you know, contributing the individual idea, uh, saying the new thing. Um, and I think people are realizing there's a lot of value we've left on the table um, in listening to each other um, and, and getting good at that. And I know for myself, that's something I, I am a, quite an independent woman, um, probably, you know, I'm a little bit non-stereotypical in that way. And I know in my own career, uh, learning how to listen um, has been incredibly important. Absolutely. It's you know, it's funny. Uh, it's one of those things that some of my mentors early on told me that how important of a skill it is, you know, and one of the things that I learned was if you're having a conversation with somebody and you're thinking about the next thing that you're about to say, you're not, you're not really listening. Right. I'm sorry. What were you saying? No, just kidding. <laughs> oh yes, exactly. <laughs> So, but on that flip side, and I think maybe, you know, as someone who's a cultural psychologist, you appreciate this. 
the other thing that I've I've learned, and I think this is there's a Jesuit priest, uh, Anthony DeMello, he wrote this wonderful book called Awareness, where he mentioned that you have to listen to yourself more than you're listening to the other person, which kind of conflicts with what I originally thought. But his point was, while someone's speaking to you, you have to listen to yourself because if you don't, there's all kinds of biases and filters and interpretations that you're going to put on what the other person is saying. And you have to be aware of that. So that way you can make sure that the message that they're delivering to you is not going to be biased by those types of things. And Oh, go ahead. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. oh, sorry. Yeah, I was just like smacking my lips with delight. Um. <laughs> oh, good, good. That's good. I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> that was, I got to say, that was the most Southern thing I've heard you say all day today. Smack my lips with delight. <laughs> Yeehaw. Right on. Um, yeah, I, it's interesting. You were just remind me of a story we tell in the book about my colleague, Hee Jung, who is from South Korea. And when she was a grad student, we were in the same, she's now a professor at UC Santa Barbara, really well-regarded cultural psychologist. Um, we were sitting in a seminar that Hazel taught and this Hazel kept on goading us to speak out in class. You need to speak up. Uh, there was also this kind of rumor or stereotype that Asians were, Asian students were freeloading because they weren't speaking up in class. They were just kind of absorbing what other people said and not giving back. So Hazel was kind of needling Heejung to contribute in class. Um, and Heejung just was not having it. Um, Hazel would call on her and she would just look at her hands and say nothing. And then one day Heejung sent an email to Hazel and he's, Hazel noticed that the signature line of the email had a new proverb in it. And it was a Korean proverb that says the, wa- the carriage that rattles, wait, sorry it's the empty carriage rattles the loudest right so the person who has the least to say who is thinking the least is probably talking the most so this led he jung to do this really brilliant dissertation showing that um for european americans the idea European Americans actually do kind of think better when we talk aloud. We we're very verbal in our thinking, but many Asians and Asian Americans actually um, think more clearly when they're not talking. And the idea is precisely what you were talking about, kind of sitting there and very carefully listening to the other person and carefully integrating it into your own thoughts and being very careful not to make mistakes. Um, And so if you are talking, you cannot do that. You cannot listen and integrate. Um, And she did these really cool experiments showing that if you ask Asians to talk aloud, they do worse than European Americans on intelligence tests. But if you ask them to, you know, do it silently, they do better. Interesting. That's very interesting. You know, uh, there one one of the other um, themes that really uh, shine through in your book was obviously this, uh, aside from listening, but this idea of empathy. And what's what's interesting is, you know, there are so many other um, really well-respected, world-renowned books that um, pretty much, uh, may, you know, threaded their way back to what you guys talked about in Clash. And uh, one of them, which has been a really uh, a big uh, seller in the business community. It's called um, 
Never Split the Difference. It's by Chris Voss, and he's a uh, an FBI negotiator. So he used to negotiate with terrorists. And like one of the biggest themes of his book was not only being able to listen, but, but the best negotiators in the FBI were the ones who were empathetic mm-hmm. and trying to understand, even when they're dealing with a terrorist, what that other person was dealing with so that they can find a way to resolve things. And it seems like that's that's a big theme in, in Clash as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, it is this, I mean, psychology is a very diverse field with a lot of different um, take-home messages. But I think one that cuts across a lot of different books and research is, yeah, you you need to understand the other, like, assume that the assume good intentions or assume that that other person is, if it has, there's a reason why they're acting the way they're acting. And if you can understand their motivations and help them meet the needs they're trying to get met, you're going to have a much better outcome. So, you know, in dealing with criminals or terrorists or bullies or, um, or just someone who seems very different from you, you know, rather than being like, this person is bad, this person's evil, this person's crazy, you know, if you try to, and, and humans can do this, like, it's amazing how good we are at mapping other people's minds, even if they are from different cultures. Um, so if you can help them meet the needs that they may be trying to meet themselves in an inappropriate way or a strange way or a combative way, you know, if you can say, Oh, I see, this is what you want. Let me see what I can do to get it for you. Um, in a kind way, uh, they are very grateful for that and they behave a lot better, (laughs) you know, like, um, yeah. You know, and it's, there's one thing that, that I, like one of the rules that I learned last year, um, and I'm, I'm referencing a lot of books. So the, the, uh, famous Dilbert cartoonist Scott Adams. He he also happens to be a trained hypnotist and self-proclaimed student of uh, psychology. One of the things he talks about in his uh, recent book Loser Think is, you know, if you feel if the, whatever opinion you have relies on you being able to read somebody's mind, you're engaging is in in loser think. Like you can't read people's minds. And I've realized that so many times in the past many of us were making a judgment based on our ability to mind read and it's wrong, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that, you know, that comes along with, um, you know, and I think part of it, it's uh, evolutionarily uh, rooted in all humans that we have a tendency to shortcut our way in our brains to put things together that actually don't really make sense, but in our minds they do, you know, rather than being more empathetic and curious to try and, like get to the root of the truth, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I I think most people, or many people, or at least some people, especially people with an independent self, will tend to think, you know, at the end of the day, we're all alike. And, you, you know, if I search my soul, I can understand your soul. And that is just incorrect. Um, you are, it will probably be more correct if you're trying to read the soul of someone with a very similar cultural background as yours and a very similar disposition as yours, but that's not that many people, (laughs) you know, I mean, so it it is this, it's not mind reading, it's kind of, um, it's mind asking, it's like actually asking people questions, it's trying to understand where they come from, how they think about things, and from the outset, assuming 
that it's maybe not like your way of looking at the world, or maybe it's not your set of needs, but that doesn't mean it's not, those are not valid thoughts and those are not valid feelings and those are not valid motivations. No, absolutely. For, um, for those who you know are listening to this, you know, both men and women, what, what would be your biggest, uh, biggest piece of advice in terms of how they can work better in the workplace, not only with other people with different genders, but of obviously races, culture, all these different things. What would be the number one piece of advice you'd give them? Um, well, I think it's those three steps um, that I outlined, you know, even if it's not a conflict situation, just assume that people who seem inscrutable or bad or strange to you aren't jerks, you know, that they that they come from a different background, they have a different set of assumptions, their operating system's a little bit different, um, and then use your interdependent side to find out about that, right? To, I mean, in other work I've done, you know, I encourage people to think of yourself like an anthropologist, like ask questions, what is, and, you know, who is this person? Why do they care about what they care about? And build that, um, that relational foundation, that interdependent foundation of trust and concern um, instead of kind of, and, and once again, not being intimidated by the very likely um, reality that this person's quite different from you and sees the world different from you. And, but that doesn't mean you can't work together. You can't even be friends. Um, yeah. So I think leading with interdependence and making the effort to know people um, and not in this kind of, you know, we talk about the golden rule, which is uh, do unto others as you would have done unto you. But that's not the right way to think about this. We instead endorse the platinum rule, which is do unto others as they would have you do unto them, right? Like go out of your- I like the platinum rule. That's a good one. Yeah, like don't assume that they that they want what you want. Um, you know, make the effort to find out. No, absolutely. You know, one of the things that I really liked, and again, it's like you know the old saying that Peter Drucker has. You know, the the things that get measured are the things that get managed. Again, you're, you the, this book is one of the few in you know on this topic, uh, whether it's cultural psychology or you can say even uh, uh, sociology or, or just regular just you know, any, any type of psychology, because they usually don't have this, but you also have a, um, I don't want to call it a test, but you have this thing where someone can go through and, uh, go through these various things about which hemisphere they're from, gender, race, and ethnicity, and come up with a score to see whether they're more independent and interdependent. And what's even better is that you and Hazel actually scored, um, a few people scored Barack Obama, Bill Gates, and Mother Teresa, which I thought was fantastic. Um, but it really gives you a perspective of how people function. And I think, you know, having this in the back of my head, when I find myself interacting with people uh, these days, especially when I go into a very important meeting with, with somebody or negotiation, I actually go through this uh, this table and framework that you guys have. So that way I can have in mind, like, okay, so this person functions more interdependent than independent. And here's what I have to do on myself to make sure that we have a, a better conversation. And I've seen an improvement in my interactions throughout my, throughout my career just in the last couple of years because of that. No way. That's cool. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad that it's useful for you. Um, you know, I think 
I mean, that's meant to, um, you know, it, it's not determined. It's not a hundred percent. It's a, it's a, a tool to get people thinking. Cause as I said at the top of this interview, you know, we only have, we talk about eight cultural conflicts uh, in this book, There's but there's a lot more, you know, and, and also these things intersect, right? And so being a middle-class white man is, uh, you know, subtly different from being a middle-class white woman or a working-class white man or a middle-class black man. Um, you see how these things kind of interact, but I, 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 I agree. I do the same thing. I, you know, I don't want to stereotype people. I don't want to assume that they're exactly like this but it's a nice little gut check like hmm, this person is different from or similar to me on these dimensions how might uh i am i usually recommend like being just being more interdependent usually you're like if i'm just a little bit more interdependent with this person who's probably a little bit more interdependent than i am we're gonna have a better we're gonna have a better interaction yeah, absolutely. And I think that the big part of that, and I think it seems like that the, the keystone of being interdependent is being able to be curious and listen first. Um, because when you do that, you can't, I mean, well, I guess you could, you, you could listen in a very selfish way, but if you're doing it the right way, you're, you're doing it from a point of view of being very curious and, and coming to terms with it. You have no idea what the other person's thinking. And you're trying to understand that. Yeah, I mean, I am probably not no idea, but maybe a wider range of possibilities than if you just kind of waltz in and assume you know everything. Like this person is a, you know, a, yeah, um, this person's just like me. This person's a human just like me, and they have their same needs as I do, and therefore I can just treat them the way I want to be treated. You know, that's usually not going to get you very far, especially in a diverse workforce where many people are not like you and they don't have the same needs as you. And so having that curiosity, having that openness is pretty important to meeting other people's needs and having better collaborations. Absolutely. Now I got to ask, so um, this book, let me see, was published. Do you remember when you published this book? Jeez, uh, I think the hardcover, which is Clash, Eight Cultural Conflicts That Make Us Who We Are, came out in 2000. Lala, I'm looking at it. I have it here, too. Oh, that's cheating. I, it was... 2013. And then the, the, pa the paperback, which has a slightly different title, but pro tip is the same book, is Clash, How to Thrive in a Multicultural World. And that came out in 2014. Ah, okay. So... Any any new books on the horizon? Well, I am thinking about um, I am indeed thinking about my next book and doing some research um, based on the reception to Clash and what I found myself doing most of my my talking and consulting on has been the the gender chapter and gender clashes and so. I'm really interested in exploring the science of how to win as a woman. So my, my working title is stop pulling yourself up by the bra straps, the science of winning as a woman. Um, and you know, you can probably guess that the prescription is that women win when we're more, when we use our interdependence and when we find or create environments that welcome interdependence. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's, I think that's a, I, I agree with that. And, and the, the best example I can think of is that, you know, it's funny because this is a conversation that came up a few weeks ago that uh, I had a friend of mine 
who's talking to me about his coworker and he and the thing that he said was, yeah, so and so she's she's really brilliant, but sometimes I feel like in meetings she's trying to act like a man and it's really off putting. Um, and of course, my response to him, I was like, well, I was like, maybe because you're being an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> maybe the problem is you. <laughs> so I think so. And again, I could be wrong. This is just my perspective. On one side, I think I think it's valuable for women to learn how to do things that, you know, men do naturally that you mentioned before, like at least on the independent side, you mentioned that men are a little bit more aggressive and they speak up more. But at the same time, I think that men have to be more interdependent. So that way you don't have women trying to over like way overcompensate and be someone that they're not. And at the same time, you don't have men trying to be someone that is not you know, that doesn't necessarily resonate with them. You know, I feel like if everyone just puts a little, a tiny bit of effort to try and adapt their self, right, and evolve, you don't have other people having to just go so far to do these kind of things. I feel like that was just a vert, like word salad that I just sped out, but no, I, no, I have no. a feeling that you were tracking along with me. Yeah, well, and I know this is something that, that you're thinking about because we've, we've talked about it a little bit. Um, so here's what I would say. I think you're absolutely correct that in a world with seven and a half billion people, which is where we're headed with climate change and migration and, uh, you know, scarcity, you know, resources that are growing scarce, um, interdependence is going to be even more important than it was in the past um, because there's just a lot of us here and we got to get along or we're going to like screw ourselves completely. Right. And that goes for men and for women. And I think that women have as a general rule, have a jumpstart on that because we have been socialized to be that way um, for, for in most cultures, not all, there's some interesting exceptions. Um, I think the point that I um, as a woman who is not, um, who tends to be more independent. I mean, I don't feel like I'm acting like a man. I feel like I'm acting very much like myself. Um, and that has actually served me well in many contexts that rewarded independence. Um, but like many women who, you know, once again, I don't feel like we're acting like men, like we legitimately like kind of popped out this way. <laughs> um, uh, there's a backlash. Uh, if you're an assertive woman, um, you know, it's like, uh, that's not, if you're an assertive, you're, you're told to succeed in traditionally masculine places that you need to be assertive and speak up for yourself and be, um, you know, innovative and competitive. And then as a woman, you show up and you face backlash for acting that way because it's not the theme, the female stereotype, which is complete bullshit, by the way. What do you mean? Well, that it's, it's unfair. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yo, totally right. Yeah, yeah. That up. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're full of bullshit, Connor. <laughs> I mean, you're not the first to say that, but I just wanted to make sure I understood what you're saying. Yeah, no, it's true. It's it's not fair. I mean, I'm not the first person. It's you know the double bind and the triple bind and the catch twenty two and you know backlash of being an assertive woman that you can only get so far, uh, and then you face the crushing reality that. You know, no matter what you do, they just don't want a woman there, you know, and like maybe it's not even a conscious thought or goal 
that there's something about that candidate, there's something about that manager, there's something about that report that just isn't quite right. And then if you push your little, it's like, oh, it's because I'm not acting the way you expect women to. Um, so, so, I mean, I, I would never, and I think at the end of the day, we need to support more ways of being a person in the workforce. But historically, that has meant that women were expected to assimilate to the male norm, the male way of being. And what I'm endorsing is that, hey, maybe more people should assimilate to interdependence um, for several reasons. First, like it seems to work better in groups. And number two, it's also how most people are already and it's less of a lift you can literally bring your many selves to work and they're supported and embraced absolutely absolutely and i think probably the most more important thing you know my uh dear mentor chris sells he passed away last summer um he he didn't exactly uh, put it in this context of culture but you know his thing when he would hire teams was he was interested in hiring the most um diverse group of people, you know, and that's not just by gender or, or race, you know, he's also talking about like, uh, uh, you know, educational background where they grew up, all these things, because his thing was, if you hire people from a diverse group of, uh, from a diverse background, you know, all kinds of walks of life, and they all feel comfortable with each other. Then when you look at a problem, you have a variety of people looking at something from a variety of different ways and you'll come up with by far the best solution. And I think in work, the only way you do that is when people feel, I, I hate to use the word empowered because that's just been, thrown, I feel like it's thrown around so much these days, but I guess when, if anything, for people to feel comfortable being themselves at work. And then if they're, if you're comfortable being yourself, you bring the best version of yourself to work. And as a result of that, you might see something that, your colleague does not when it comes to a problem, and then you you find a creative way of solving it. And then I think that's sort of the the ultimate when it comes to problem solving. Yeah, um, actually, there's a really cool study that my colleague Sam Summers did a while ago, looking at decision making on juries. And Sam found that um, the more diverse the jury, the better they actually um, followed the rules of being a good jury, the better job they did at paying attention to all the information in front of them and assimilating it in a logical way and not making, you know, standard errors of reasoning. Um, so di more diverse juries do that than less diverse, uh, more diverse juries do that more than less diverse juries. And it's exactly the, that. It's kind of, um, if we're all alike, if I'm in a room of women European American women who are my age, on the one hand, it feels really comfortable, right? Because we're all coming from the same place and I, I don't have to explain myself. But when you don't have to explain yourself, that's when you get sloppy with your decision making and you don't explain yourself and you don't bring to the table knowledge that other people might benefit from because you assume they already know it. So when you put people in diverse situations or put, put people from diverse backgrounds in a situation and empower them, I think empower is a fine word, or make them feel comfortable sharing themselves, they do. <laughs> and they also are more careful in their decision making and more, um, and more sharing of their experience and their stories and their perspectives than if it's a pretty hom homogenous group. No, absolutely. 
Absolutely. I got to tell you, just, you know, kind of quick pivot. One, I was, I'm trying to find it, but one of your uh, sub chapters is like by far the, the wittiest and funniest title chapter I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen a lot of them and I'm trying to find it. Can you take a wild guess which one that is? I think that might be Hose in Different Area Codes. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> God, you know me so well. Right, tell us right. What, tell I... us about that chapter. Yeah, so I love that research. Um, uh, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily love my writing about it, but uh, it, the the finding is so around the world, uh, different polities, different societies differ in how much women participate in public life, um, ranging from extremes, you know, in Nordic countries and actually in many hunter gatherer societies where women are actually equally represented or even more represented to other societies where, you know, women aren't allowed to vote, aren't allowed to drive, you know, live in separate housing and are not, are kind of hidden from public view, um, don't participate in politics. And so, and I'm totally blanking. I think this is Alberto Alessina. I can, actually, I should check on that, but um, I believe it's his research um, looking at what are the origins of these differences around the world and the authors of this study um, mapped it to, you know, 10,000 years ago, who adopted plow agriculture and who uh, stuck with or, or who adopted um, stick and hoe um, agriculture. Now, obviously, this is partly dictated by the terrain and the kind of soil. Um, and the idea was that if I'm just using a hoe to hoe my row, <laughs> right, I can... I can have a child breastfeeding on me. I can have my children out in the field. I, as a woman, can continue to participate in economic life. Um, but if my people, as uh, societies, were adopting agriculture, um, if we start using a plow, and plows are pulled by large animals, different animals in different parts of the world, it's no longer safe for me to have my children out in the field because they are going to get trampled by the animals and the machinery. And so um, the authors actually trace um, present day cultural differences in women's participation in politics and the workforce to uh, how prevalent plow versus hoe agriculture is um, historically and in the current day in those regions. So Hose and different area codes. <laughs> and by hoe, of course, I mean the garden implement. I'm glad we cleared that up. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the opportunity to uh, share that. I should definitely, yes, ask me the next question. And I'm going to find properly attribute the, I'm pretty sure it's Alberto Alessina. Yeah, no, no, no sweat. No sweat. Um, no, I, I, I gotta say, um, I think Clash is, is, is really, I mean, I, I personally enjoyed it a lot. I, I, I've recommended it to a lot of uh, people who are especially going into leadership positions because it, it, I think it's important to have this in the back of your mind um, or, or not even the back of your mind, rather the front of your mind, because, you know, a lot of companies, especially here in Silicon Valley, they're trying to become more global. And if not global, you're definitely recruiting people from all walks of life. And I've really understood the value um, of making people feel welcomed and comfortable 
at work. And I think there's a, w- a way you can strike a fine balance where you have more or less like a, a unified company culture, but within that, everyone's every, you know feels uh, comfortable and empowered to be themselves and you know uh, work within the best ways that allows them to express themselves creatively and of course solve you know the biggest problems on earth. I mean, here in Silicon Valley, this is the place where the impossible really does become the possible. And I think part of that is because you know people are put in positions where they can feel comfortable to do so. Um, and not have to force themselves to be too independent or too interdependent, you know. And I think, as as forward thinking as Silicon Valley is, there's still a lot of work to be done, especially when it comes to the cultural cultural aspect of it. Um, yeah, certainly. I think. Um, well, first of all, thank you for saying such nice things about Clash and for promoting it to your friends and colleagues. Really appreciate that here at the home office, um, and <laughs> and and I, I'm 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 uh, flattered that you find it so useful. So thank you for for supporting the work. Um, uh, you know, tech is famous for its gender skew, and I really felt it at a conference I recently attended, um, and I noticed that at this particular conference, like, uh, so when I was a practicing academic social scientist, social sciences are often dominated by women. And I would go to a conference and there's like long lines for the women's bathroom. And then I go to tech conferences and there's long lines for the men's bathroom. Uh, and that is because of the gender imbalance in, in many of these companies. And you really do feel it in the, in the culture. Um, there's also, I mean, depending on the company, um, not a lot of, uh, certainly not a lot of socioeconomic diversity or ethnic diversity. And so there's a lot of room in Silicon Valley for improvement. Um, and definitely the mileage varies by company, um, how dedicated they are to, to diversifying. So, um, it's, it's not, a it's a growth industry actually, you know, and this is the clash, even though it's been, you know, now seven years since the hardcover was published, the book is still selling very, very well uh, because I think the idea um, that we need to do this and people know something about it. There is, there are sciences dedicated to understanding how better to um, harbor diversity and inclusion and equity um, companies are now much hungrier for it than they were when the book came out. Yeah, no, and I definitely, I think I'm, I'm seeing that, you know, recently, uh, I'm wondering what your, what your thoughts on this is, is that I believe I, I don't know if it's all of California, but there was a, a law that was passed where I think by law, uh, companies, they have to have at least one female board member uh, on their board. Yeah. Am I correct in saying that? I believe so. Yeah. What's your, what's your, what are your thoughts? What are your, what's your take on that? Well, it's a step in the right direction. Um, in our book, we actually uh, cover research showing that you really need like 25% to 33% representation of women in organizations for them to start functioning well, because when you have, excuse me, only uh, one or two women, um, they suffer from what's known as token status, which is right. all eyes. Yeah. So all it's like very, um, they're seeing the, the, the fact that they are different is highlighted. 
Um, so they are definitely viewed as outsiders and, uh, it's hard, not just for the women, but also for the men. They don't know what to do with these women. Um, my favorite example, um, of research on this was symphony or symphony orchestras in the U S and Europe, as they started to admit more and more women often by implementing blind, uh, uh, blind auditions, um, because otherwise women were not going to get into (laughs) the orchestras, um, up to 33%, uh, as the orchestras diversified, um, when they had fewer than 33% women, they actually sounded really bad. Um, they People noticed that they weren't performing as well, and of course the women get blamed, but it was actually the men who were also feeling um, threatened by this invasion of women and didn't know how to collaborate with women and were not on their A-game. And then you can only imagine from the women's side, you know, you're being asked um, if you're the one woman on a board, you know, it's like, well, give us the woman's perspective. And you're like, I'm just like a chick here, you know, like, (laughs) and an odd one at that. Like, I can't really speak for all women or, you know, all black people or all natives or all, you know, first generation students or whatever. Like, this is the, the problem with tokenism. And so ideally, you would want to see something more, um, I mean, Americans really react to this, but it it is kind of like a quota, right? Not just one woman, but perhaps, you know, I think a better, a better uh, rule would be 33% women, at least. Yeah, I I definitely agree. And actually that, you know, for me, that makes a lot more sense. Because when I saw that come out, I was like, what is that going to do exactly? And I think uh, a percentage like that, that makes a lot more sense. Because what you don't want is to have like a quota or essentially like a check mark token person. You know, right. It just didn't seem seem to make sense. You know, Goldman Sachs recently uh, announced that they supposedly they 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 will refuse to take anyone public if they don't if the company does not have at least one diverse person on the board and and for me I'm just like I'm like what does that mean one diverse person? But I like what you put and I think that's, you know, the, these companies would be better off consulting somebody like you on these topics. But that makes a lot more sense to have, like, let's say 25% or a third, you know, of of a board to be like people of a diverse background or something. That makes a lot more sense to me versus, oh, it has to be just one. And I'm like, okay, so are we going to see companies just go and say, uh, yeah, let's just grab this person, you know, like it just doesn't. You want it to be meaningful and make make impact, not just check a box off, right? Well, once again, I'm I I'll, I'll take what I can get, right? It's a step in the right direction. It's better than nothing, and you know I think we have to celebrate small wins, um, but we also can't rest on our laurels and assume that that's going to be enough. Um, and I think with uh, one rule of thumb, I think makes a lot of sense is that you know the workforce and the board should represent the customers you're serving. Um, or the constituents or the clients or, or whomever your, your organization was created to serve. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, if, uh, how are you going to represent the needs of those customers or clients or constituents if they're not in, within the walls of your organization? I mean, sure, you can do you can do some user research, you can do some marketing research, and I can go out and survey, um, you know, however many people, and come back and say, oh, well, it turns out that, um, you know, I, I I don't even want to like call out a group here, but um, 
you know, this is what they, they say they want, but there's not any empathy within the organization for that viewpoint. And so it's very unlikely to have much impact, you know, until you have the people in the walls of your organization, you can't really serve the people like that outside the walls of your organization. Absolutely. I, I, I absolutely agree with that. And it, and it makes complete sense as well. Um, you know, one thing that actually, uh, Mr. Howard Rose, uh, I've heard of that guy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Idea. He's got a great wife. <laughs> Hell, hell, hell. She's very, very lucky. She's a very lucky woman. <laughs> you told me a, a couple years ago, and I've actually started to do this, was um, with the exception of if I have someone in mind, but if I have a job opening um, to ask for the resumes and I, I have the uh, the names actually removed from them, mm-hmm. that can be a little bit more objective about the way I look at them, you know, because even for me, like, look, I'm... I, I have no problem with men or women or any single race, but there I have my own biases that I'm probably not even aware of, you know, and I would prefer that when it comes to making a decision about hiring somebody, at least from a technical aspect, that those things are removed so I can focus on what's important and not be distracted by something as simple as someone having a similar name to me or, you know, it, it being a man or a woman or anything else like that. I did notice that all your employees are named Omar, and I meant to talk to you about that. <laughs> you know, I gotta I tell mean... you, I gotta tell you one funny thing that's happened lately, and I'm I'm not kidding you. The amount of so because of LinkedIn uh, and how much I post on there, I've had a lot of young people reach out for mentorship, and I think there's been at least four or five uh, young men I'm mentoring now, all named Omar. One even named Omar Khatib. It's really, really, yeah, I swear it's, it's, it's very, very strange. Like to be getting correspondences from somebody named Omar, it's, it's just, it throws me off a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's kind of like a mini me situation there. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But I want to talk about that kind of blind, the blinded resume thing. Cause I'm kind of of two minds about it. Cause on, on the one hand, yes, you don't want to be biased by the name and there's actually really cool, several really cool experiments now uh, in psychology where they randomly assign people to read exactly the same resume. That's either Jennifer or Jamal or Jeff or Jacinta. Right. And so is this seeming to be a white woman, a woman of color, a white man or um, a, a man of color and the finding as even if the resumes are identical, you are less likely to hire the woman or the person of color um, than you are the white person or the the man. Um, and and you offer you know less salary and you know whatever you have a, a worse impression, um, even if the resumes are identical. Um, so if you just look at that research, I think you walk away. Yes, you should you should blind the resume and take the name off of it. But the other side of that is, you know, there are in the real world, not in a psychology experiment, there are so many other signals in a resume about a person's gender and even their ethnicity, right? Like, uh, was I in the sorority? Do I serve on the board of the Girl Scouts or the Boy Scouts? You know, um, so we leak a lot of information about our identities. And so I would just be cautious. I would say that's a good first step to take off the names, but also um, I wouldn't stop there because then you still could wind up with hiring a bunch of people just like you, right? Because 
they sit on the same board you sit on, or they went to the same school, they were in the same fraternity, they play on the same soccer teams or whatever. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. I mean, the other thing, so for me, I, I'm very proud of where I went to, went to school, but I, I went to like a, a very regular state college. I went to UTEP, so it's not even a ranked college. But one thing that I've noticed, and this is not, I, I guess, yeah, this is cultural, but you know, the other thing is that I'm trying to like not look at peop, where people went to school because if I, if I see where, where they went to school and I'm looking at two candidates who are completely the same and one went to an Ivy League school and the other one did not, whether I'm going to admit it or not, I'm going to be a little biased towards the Ivy League or just in the back of my head. And then if not, if not being biased towards Ivy League or I'm biased towards a person who didn't go to Ivy League because I, for whatever reason, might think, oh, this person is going to be like more willing to work hard and prove themselves. So there's, again, it goes back to this thing of we just have these biases and we come up with these stories in our head that we're not even aware of until we actually start listening to ourselves. And you're like, oh, shit, like <laughs> I'm 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 either making this decision one way or another based on just stories in my head. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't just call them stories in your head. I call them, you know, really important stories in the world, you know, and and, you know, we have this word bias, which sounds, you know, really damning. It's like, oh, my God, Omar, you're so biased. Um, and the thing is, we all are. Um, this is we evolved in small communities. Uh huh. I was going to say, I was like, you're absolutely right. I was like, I have a really strong bias against pedophiles, but I think that's a very healthy bias. Exactly. Right. I mean, we, and, and this is part of being human is we're born into communities where we inherit stories about each other. And I worry a little bit that sometimes people think that the, the, ob, the goal is to eliminate these stories about each other. And I think, that's not the goal because there's you're just going to replace them with other stories. And in fact, you know, this is where we get this kind of colorblind ideology of, oh, I don't see color. You know, I don't notice that people are black. And it's like, you are a la. <laughs> love hearing that shit because this is such horseshit to be honest yeah and it's like of course you notice color and that's okay but like then it's like what is the story you have about black people what is the story you have about middle easterners what is the story you have about southerners and bringing that to consciousness and challenging it and saying well probably not all of them are like that let me find out what this particular middle eastern man from texas is like um, or this particular white woman from Tennessee is like, like, so, you know, that I think, so, so yeah, uh, I feel like people are so ashamed of their biases now, um, and that they try to drive them underground instead of holding up to the light and being like, okay, like the, the story exists, it's definitely incomplete and it should not be applied to the individual sitting in front of me. I know. Absolutely. Well, Elena, I got to tell you, thanks for jumping on like on a Sunday night and, and talking clash. Um, how can people connect with you? I believe you're on Twitters. I You can find me on the Twitter. I'm uh, at A-L-A-C-O-N, Alicon. I'm on Instagram uh, at 
A-L-A-C-O-N-T-E-U-R, although maybe that's not the best way to find me. Actually, if you can edit that out, edit that out. Yeah, I'm at... <laughs> Definitely not editing that part out, but I'll leave, I'll leave links to this in the show notes. That's, that's Right. Yeah. And you can just also just like email me the old-fashioned way. It's lastname.firstname at gmail.com. My website, um, www.elenaconnor.com. Um, yeah, you can find me. I'm out here. I'm not I'm not hiding from you. Out there. You're getting it. <laughs> you can also email Omar. Oh, yeah. He'll, yeah, he'll connect exactly. you. He'll connect you. His number is, yeah. Um, <laughs> just text him. He'll find me. Awesome. Well, Elena, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really looking forward to... Uh, when you publish the next book and I'll have you back on and we'll talk, we'll talk clash in genders. Yes. And thank you so much, Omar, for the thoughtful reading of clash and for inviting me on your show and for being a great friend. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for signing my book twice too, by the way, I didn't realize that I had you sign it a year ago and then I had you re-sign it, but I like that there's two signatures in there. We call it test, retest, reliability. It- <laughs> there we go. Awesome. Well, thank you, Elena. Thank you. Take care. You too. Thank you again for tuning in to this week's episode of The Mind Loom. For questions that you'd like to submit, please email mindloomboom at gmail.com. That's mindloomboom at gmail.com.